Overdrive. Hello and welcome to Overdrive, a program that looks at the factors affecting our attitude and actions to motoring and transport. I'm David Brown and in this program we have new stories including Victoria's poor car sales figures. And when we toured through villages such as Tarana last week, we pondered town names that resembled to or had the same spelling as car names. But while Monaro is an example, Dean Oliver tells us that locals pronounce it differently and you should always be aware of that. We have some feedback, some motoring minutes, another interview that after testing the Nissan Patrol, Rob Fraser gives us his opinion on how this large SUV stacks up in the market. And in our quirky news segment, we have the unusual and deeply sad story of a man who was shot for crossing the road too slowly. Did I mention that it is in America? You can find more information at drivenmedia.com.au. Our previous programs are available as podcasts on Spotify or iTunes. Or you can go to our Facebook page, Overdrive City, one word. So let's get the program going with the news. August 2020 was another bad month for sales of new cars in Australia, with a decline of over 24,600 vehicles compared to the same period last year. Two-thirds of the decline was in Victoria, which has had to implement strict lockdown rules to contain COVID-19. In year-to-date percentage terms, Victoria is still the worst state, but Tasmania and the Northern Territory are not far behind. In contrast, the ACT sales volumes have risen 24% compared to last year. The Federal Chamber of Automotive Industries has implored the Victorian Government to allow Melbourne Metropolitan Vehicle and Motorcycle Dealerships to open up. The FCAI says that dealerships follow best practice COVID-safe protocols. The trend is not just COVID-19, as sales have declined in Australia for the last 29 months, but the FCAI says the pandemic is pushing some dealers to the wall. In the last several weeks, we have reported on the launch of the new model of the Yaris, Toyota's smallest car. While it has many safety and technology features, One strong criticism is the price. The current top-of-the-range ZR costs $32,100 plus on-road costs. A Volkswagen Polo GTI with significant more power is less than $1,000 more. Now, Toyota will release in November the high-performance GR Yaris model with an introductory price of $40,000 drive away, but only to the first 1,000 vehicles sold. They say it would normally be expected to carry a recommended retail price of 49500 The GR has 2,000 kilowatts from its turbocharged three-cylinder engine, more than double the power of any other variant in the range. There will also be a model designed for circuit racing due next year, but they didn't mention the price. The ongoing development of new technologies such as the hydrogen fuel cell could reap great benefits to transport, but also to other industries. 
Hyundai Motor Company in Korea has just began shipping its proprietary fuel cell system to Europe for use by non-automotive companies, including a Swiss hydrogen solution firm, GRZ Technologies. The problem with implementing fuel cells has been the need for large tanks to hold enough hydrogen. GRZ has the technology to store about 5 to 10 times more hydrogen than before, with a pressure lower than 30 bar, which is significantly lower than the storage pressure of a normal hydrogen tank, 200 to 500 bar. It's expected that this technology will be used in various ways through cooperation between the two companies in the future. Similar to batteries, stationary fuel cells may help provide energy in high demand periods. Electronic anti-sway systems are one of the features that have improved safety for people towing a trailer or a caravan. If the vehicle detects that the trailer is getting into a rhythmic swaying pattern, it uses the ABS system to individually vary the braking on each wheel on the tow vehicle to correct the situation. Now, General Motors' GMC Sierra premium large pickup will have several new trailer technologies in the 2021 model year. Features will include a trailer length indicator where the screen indicates twice the length of the trailer and alerts when other vehicles are in the extended blind spot where a vehicle can interfere with a lane change. There's also a jackknife alert, an enhanced rear trailer view with guidelines that assist when backing a trailer into place and a cargo bed viewer which includes a zoom view to help hitch guidance. Since 2015, Volkswagen has been taking the brunt of bad publicity and huge fines arising from the Dieselgate affair, where software systems allowed cars to perform better in standard fuel economy and pollution tests than they would in normal operations. Now Daimler and subsidiary Mercedes-Benz USA have agreed to pay the equivalent of $2 billion Australian to US authorities to resolve emissions cheating allegations. There's a further civil settlement, which will bring a one-off charge of another billion dollars. The allegations are that they sold 250,000 cars and vans in the US with diesel engines that didn't comply with state and federal laws. Daimler denies the allegations and say they are not obligated to buy back the vehicles, as Volkswagen was, nor monitor the progress on the settlement. Previously, Fiat Chrysler agreed to pay a $900 million civil settlement, but a federal prosecution is yet to be resolved. And that has been the news. Our trip last week took us up and over the Blue Mountains west of Sydney where we visited a number of lovely small townships. One had a name very similar to a former Holden model. This made us ponder a number of towns with names like or the same as car models, but apparently locals get offended if you pronounce them in the same way as the vehicle. And we certainly don't want to offend them. Now, Dean Oliver is our expert monitor of socially acceptable behaviour and is the <laughs> ideal person to help us through this potential trap. Stick with me here, Dean. Now, Dean, you as a previous Tirana owner, we were in a town. How do you spell it and how would you pronounce it? Well, we're in a little town in between Bathurst and Lithgow and its name is Tarana. And of course, being an old Holden fan, I immediately just saw it as Tirana. And it's, you know, almost within uh, an easy trip of Mount Panorama. 
And so that brought back all sorts of wonderful memories of Holden Taranas. I don't think the locals probably saw it in quite that same way. But the little village of Tarana, and what a lovely place it is. They don't celebrate the name in any way, is there? There was an Australian flag, but not a Brocky one. <laughs> That's right. I think they probably do enjoy it, or the local hoteliers probably enjoy it uh, on that Bathurst weekend when uh, when the little town is uh, is filled with, with people looking for, for meals and accommodation. But what a beautiful part of New South Wales it is. Tirana is a name coming from the Aboriginal word meaning to fly. Not sure if that reflected the way you drove your car, Dean, but Tarana is an Aboriginal word meaning large waterhole. So if you do fly in your Tirana, you may puncture the water system in the car and leave a large waterhole there. Perhaps there is a link. Quite possible. And then thinking about other names of local cars, and of course our beloved Holnaro, if you travel to the southeastern corner of New South Wales in the Snowy Mountains, you're in the Monero district. Uh, spelt the same, but pronounced quite differently. Locals in these places do get quite sort of tetchy about how you pronounce their names. Go to uh, the Snowy Mountains and say you're in the Monaro country and uh, you'll be known immediately as uh, not a local. An outsider. Definitely an outsider, yes. Now, not too far away from there, in between Goulburn and Bungendore, is the little town of uh, Tarago, which is spelt T-A-R-A-G-O, as in the Toyota Tarago. And I know from experience that uh, pop into the pub at uh, Tarago and you'll be known straight away as not a local. I believe Tarago or Tarago is an Aboriginal word meaning country. You know how they got the name Monaro? Uh, no, but I'm sure you can tell us, David. In late 1967, nine months to go till the launch, this new sports coupe from Holden was without a name. Now, they were thinking of names like the ones in America, like Chevrolet's Camaro or the Oldsmobile Tornado and Noel Bedford a technical stylist and a member of the Holden design team, was driving through Cooma and he saw the name of the Monaro County Council. Perhaps that's what he thought it was, but it reminded him of Marlborough Country and, of course, the Camaro. Oh, right. So they sat round the drafting table, impromptu board meeting, and lo and behold, that became its name. And, David, you said that the uh, the fellow from Holden, his name was Bedford. Was that correct? <laughs> yes. <laughs> no, Bedford. <laughs> but it's wonderful that uh, Australian manufacturers have named their cars after uh, after local places like Monaro and Tirana. And uh, I was just thinking, there's, there's that name Bungendore in between Goulburn and, uh, and Canberra. I mean, you know, the, a perfect name there for, say, the, uh, the Toyota Bungendore. <laughs> you think... Car names really do have to, I mean, good names, that what, they evoke a certain feeling and uh, things that, like an aspirational feeling or an assertive or even an aggressive feeling in the, name, in the case of sports cars. American cars have had tremendously great names like Corvette and Mustang. They're very evocative sorts of names. Well, sticking with the locations, of course, there was the Ford Everest. I'm just associating... Uh, Ford Motor Vehicle and the Everest, Mount Everest, that's all, because in front of me here I was looking at the Holden Kingswood and the Holden Belmont, which is kind of the opposite end of, um, of the world to uh, Mount Everest. The Everest, of course, could be misinterpreted as being hard to climb into. Given it's an SUV, maybe that's not bad. Kingswood is a name that has been associated with extremes in fortune, health and spirituality. You either have enjoy great success or suffer abject misery. 
Now, you, you, Dean, your family owned a Belmont, didn't you? No, we didn't. We had a Kingswood, Dave. Please, come on. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes, it was a Kingswood. It wasn't the Belmont. I mean, the Belmont was the absolute rock-bottom model. It was so poor, it didn't even have armrests, whereas the Kingswood had, I think it had bucket seats. So the Belmont only had a bench seat at the front. Now, the Kingswood, of course, named after, of course, you know, the western, uh, western suburbs of Sydney, uh, suburb of Kingswood. Belmont, um, I like to think, named after that lovely little spot south of Newcastle called Belmont. But... It's fortunate that I think in the case of Australian car names that uh, you can take your choice. There's a Belmont in, I think, in Western Australia and there's Belmonts in all sorts of other um, locations around the place. I think it comes out of Scotland where there were a number of chapels in that belt. It, it has a meaning of you go to great heights and equally great depths. This seems to be common in Holden cars, doesn't it? You're either right on top or abject misery. Abject misery. <laughs> this could be totally... Th- you're emotionally and fixed in your opinions. You're hospitable, sentimental, often psychic, sometimes moody. Or maybe that's the way... It, yeah, these are the emotions you may get when you drove some of these older Holden. You mentioned the other one too, Subaru Outback. That's sort of trying to reflect our image of location. Yeah, it's a bit regional. Overseas markets uh, immediately associate that with uh, the wide open spaces of Outback Australia. Crocodile Dundee. You have a passion for a few other names as well. I'm particularly taken by the Audi cars, the uh, A3 and the A4, which I think is uh, tremendous to be named after paper sizes. And... uh... (laughs) You're reflecting there, Dean, your background in cartography, I think. (laughs) Just having folded up many hundreds of maps in my time, David, that's all. And your favourite? My favourite is the Land Rover Defender. I mean, to have a motor car named after a a garden snail killer, I think, is terrific. We're really talking here about the keeping up appearances. Hyacin, who's insisted on her name being called Bouquet rather than Bucket. Yes. Perhaps that's the same with people who don't necessarily want to be associated with what was, in sales terms, the glory years of Holden, but in terms of engineering, perhaps not their finest hour. Sometimes um, extremely exotic vehicles, David, like the, the Bentley Mulsanne, named after the town in France where the Le Mans 24-hour race is held. And the Rolls-Royce Camargue or whatever it's called. And, and that just shows you that you have to be so elite that you're actually and wealthy enough to know how to pronounce the name of it. So it's, it's the... Rolls-Royce Camargue or Camargue-U? Camargue. Camargue. Doesn't sound very elite. It looks a lot better in print. How did you pronounce the other one of the Le Mans place? Malsan, I think it's pronounced, David. Malsan. That sounds like a cheap wine, really, doesn't it? I don't like that name. Yeah, so I'm probably unlikely to ever need to sort of um, uh, think about that one. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> I certainly won't be using it. In... Next time you get a road test vehicle of a Malsan or a Rolls-Royce Camargue, we'll talk about this in more detail, David. Dean, lovely to talk to you. Thank you for your time and your expertise. Thank you, David. And that's Dean Oliver, our resident artist and social critic and observer, helping us make sure that we don't mispronounce names that sound like cars but locals desperately don't wish to be associated with. You're listening to Overdrive. Smaller SUVs have become more popular for urban driving, often replacing hatchbacks and sedans. The Nissan Duke has been in the mix for a while. The latest model was launched in May and comes with a 1.0-litre turbocharged 3-cylinder engine 
a seven-speed DCT, and there are four models in the range. It is two-wheel drive only. It is also built on an all-new platform that significantly improves ride and handling. The transmission is a little jerky though and is best suited to being pushed rather than simply pottering around. Fuel economy though is just under 6 litres per 100 k's. The styling is still edgy and they come well equipped with a 5 star ANCAP safety rating and an 8 inch touchscreen as well as improved infotainment connectivity. An interesting feature for the music lovers is the Bose speakers that are built into the front seat headrests on the TI model. There's a large choice in the smaller urban SUV segment and the Nissan Duke should definitely be in your choice. Priced from just under $28,000 for the entry model ST through to around $36,500 for the top of the line model TI plus the usual costs. I'm Rob Fraser. You're listening to Overdrive. And just a quick bit of feedback. If you go to our YouTube site, you will see that we've got a road test of the new Yaris. Just search for Overdrive City Add Driven Media to the search if you're having trouble. And I had a request from another David who was looking to buy a new car and he initially thought of a Golf GTI, a Renault Megane RS Cup or a Mazda 3. The Golf has great engineering but its reliability can be questionable. The Renault Megane RS Cup has some quirky features that take a little bit of getting used to and the driver set up to the dashboard is an acquired taste. It also has a bit of trouble getting the power to the ground through its front wheel drive. The Mazda 3 is solid, sturdy and should have good resale value. But he had subsequently thought of a few others. The Subaru WRX has been around a long time, has a big engine, but it is a little heavy on fuel and the technology, as I say, has been with us for some time. He also looked at the Hyundai i30N. The N, the end of uh, the title for a model in Hyundai means that it's a performance machine. And may I say, I think that's the pick of the litter. It has had very good reviews and it represents modern technology in a hot hatch for a young person, which I hope that he will drive sensibly. You're listening to Overdrive. Nissan have had a vehicle with the name Patrol for many, many years. In fact, the first one came out in 1951, obviously post-war car production in Japan. was really only just starting up. It was a rugged vehicle, looked awfully like a Land Rover Defender. And they claimed, of course, like the Defender, it was fantastic off-road. They say it was the first car to climb Japan's revered Mount Fuji that helped, of course, the patrol get its credibility. And for many lo- a long time, it was square and rugged. We've just been driving the latest patrol, which is classified as an up-at-large SUV. There's not many in that category below $100,000. This is one that squeezes in there. Who better to test these large SUVs that they're called that have a derivative from a four-wheel drive than Rob Fraser. G'day, Rob. David, how are you? Well, the Nissan is a big vehicle. It's a big lump of a vehicle. You really do notice it. But it, yeah, it's big. (laughs) (laughs) No other word for it. Have you driven many over the years? If you go back, they were a bit more square and rugged. It's a bit like Ford and Holden. The, The Patrol and the Land Cruiser were very much direct competitors. You know, people sat in one camp or the other, and, and they were 
pretty much as good as each other off-road. But the latest variation is uh, is certainly, while it maintains a lot of the four-wheel drive capability, I think it's very much aimed more at the, the on-road market. It has become far less rock and roll and far more lounge music, I think. Oh, absolutely. We were driving the top of the range TIL, which comes with seven seats, but also a whole pile of wood panelling, among other things. Not the sort of thing you anticipate needing in the middle of the desert. No, not really. It does have a lot of luxuries too. I think it's, I think it's very much. It was a case of we got what we could get. It was designed for the uh, the Middle East and also for America. Big five point six liter V eight. I think it is. Yeah. 5.6 litres, 298 kilowatts and 540 newton metres of torque, which is, well, in today's figures, that's probably the sort of, well, certainly some diesels would be pushing out more than that. But it runs smoothly and I've got to say, it sounds good. But it does and, and for a big vehicle, if you, if you bury the right foot, it will lift its skirt and run. It will also drink a lot of fuel doing it. <laughs> it's capability off-road. It's lost that or has it still got it? No, no, it's definitely still got it. It has very good capability off-road. It's got what they call an intelligent 4x4 shift, the typical you know, shift on the road as you go. But it's also got the different um, roads, snow, sand, rock selection as well. Very capable off-road. I just think the issue is it's not a lot of people will actually take it off-road and and the other thing, too, is for, for serious four-wheel drivers that go bush, there's not a lot of accessories for this latest model. So that makes a big difference as well. They say they have a fair number of USB ports. I also notice, of course, that uh, the top of the range one, as you travel through this beautiful countryside, your children can sit in the back and watch YouTube videos on the screens that are in the back of the headrest. Yeah, it kind of defeats the purpose, doesn't it? Remember when my girls were young, we went up the unit at a track and they were sort of, you know, trying to watch their little DVDs and I made them put them down and they said, but Dad, it's all just dirt. I'm going, yeah, but look how the dirt changes as we drive along. Did you win that debate? I did. I stole their DVD players, so I won. <laughs> well, I think there's many a person that would call you a good father for that. <laughs> exactly. The interesting thing about uh, these large or upper large SUVs is that there's only two on the market below $100,000, but there's another dozen, including things like the big Range Rover and, of course, right up to the Bentley, Bentayga yes. and the Rolls-Royce Cullinan. The land of any Urus. Urus, yeah. The XB Aston Martin. These are things that you're paying huge amounts of money for and paying for the name enormously. But would you go off-road with one? I'm not sure that I would like to take a Bentley Bentayga up my favourite dirt track. In a lot of cases, they are talking too about, well, some of them, having petrol engines. Why? Why wouldn't you go for a diesel with one of these? Well, again, that also, I think, signifies exactly where it's aimed at. You know, that the Middle East in America, where the petrol is very cheap. If you go really into the heart of Australia and a lot of places, there's some places there where petrol just doesn't even exist. You've got to carry a lot of jerry cans for one of these to, to get through some of those places. Got a seven-speed automatic transmission, 360-degree around-view monitor. I love those things, particularly if you've got this big vehicle, obviously a reversing camera and warning sounds when you're parking. The base model TI is $77,760. 
plus on roads, and the top of the range TIL goes to 92790 plus on roads. So really, that's going to hit $100,000. The dark horse in this race is the Land Rover Defender. Which you've just driven, the new one. Yes, which I've just driven the new one, and currently only in petrol because we can't get the diesels in because of production and COVID and all that type of stuff. But it'll give the patrol a run for its money in terms of value for money, which I thought I would never say about a Land Rover. It's quiet on the road and has awesome off-road capability, and people will actually use it off-road. So you would see it really for comfort driving, mainly or particularly on bitumen roads? Well, look, it maintains its four-wheel drive capability. It will, and I've taken it on the beach, I've taken it on dirt tracks, forest trails, does it without even blinking. I think it's more the point that the people who buy this particular vehicle won't do that, in general. I think that sums it up well. Uh, Rob, thank you very much for your time. David, thank you. And that's Rob Fraser from osroma.com.au, who is an expert in RVs and four-wheel drives and talking there about the Nissan Patrol, been with us since 1951 in name, but now it's very much almost a boulevard, no, no, I mean, not quite, but certainly a country tourer as much as it is or is likely to be used as an off-road vehicle. This is Overdrive across Australia. And our last section of the program, we have seen in America where people reflect on others in a very aggressive manner. A weird story indeed. No, a tragic story, I think it is. Brian Smith, how are you? Good, thank you, David. This is a shocker, isn't it? Oh, terrible. Now, a man was shot dead, John Arian Travers Allen. He was shot dead because the person who later turned themselves in, Jeremiah Wesley Penn, Sounds somewhat biblical, really, doesn't it? Mm. And the reason he gave was that the man was crossing the road too slowly. Just so I point out that he was shot eight times. I wonder if it sped him up, David, if the man was able to then proceed or then all of a sudden now the man is in front of him and you know, it's most inconvenient to go around him. It seems extreme. It does seem... You know, there's a little bit of discourtesy, possibly, but certainly... Um, oh, in the guy crossing the road might not have been... Well, I, I'm seeing discourtesy on both sides here, David. I expect any moment now President Trump to say that it's like playing golf and the group ahead of you won't let you play through. <laughs> yes. I once wrecked my knee. I was out on a launch and we were on dirt roads and what have you. Someone got stuck and I tried to walk down to help them and slipped on the road. And so I was walking with crutches. Now, among other things, Brian, I suddenly realised how uneven footpaths Mm. were and how crossing a road that has tram tracks on it becomes (laughs) quite a hazard. But the other thing was, of course, I crossed the road slowly. I'm the sort of person that doesn't want an inconvenience. I, I, I think that I'm conscious of other people around me, but I couldn't get across any quicker. If we live in a world where we can't endure that extra five or ten seconds, then I think something's drastically wrong. I think you're right, David. It's a sense of proportion that is a problem in this, isn't it? I mean, mm. yeah, sh- sure, he, it may be annoying to have to wait for somebody, but it's nothing to say that your trip is more important than that other person's, the man crossing the road. It's the sense of proportion, this decision that it's worth shooting at somebody. Eight times. 
and killing them for for a, what is a minor inconvenience would have been you now a few seconds really wasn't it david it was in uh, montgomery alabama and there's a surprise not the area that is renowned for its broad community spirit mm, mm. a sad reflection and the sheer joy of that goes around the internet of Policeman hops out of his car and helps an old lady across the street. There's one in, in I think India or something or other. Policeman, you know, a real old lady, so he picked her up and car- you know carried her across the road. I think the great majority of people spread that sort of around because it's such good news. But then you get the one off, but uh, it's uh, not particularly good. Perhaps a short story. Perhaps we ought to leave it there. Brian, lovely to talk to you. Thanks for your time. Thank you, David. Brian Smith, a transport planner who sees both the good and the bad of people in his own work. And, of course, here we have a story reflecting the bad from overseas. And this has been Overdrive. My thanks to Dean Oliver, Rob Fraser and Paul Just for their great help with this program. Overdrive is syndicated across Australia on the Community Radio Network. For more information, go to drivenmedia.com.au or previous programs are available as podcasts on iTunes or Spotify. Or there's our Facebook page, Overdrive City. Next week, we discuss why internal railway politics in the 1860s led to a Gothic-style stationmaster's house. I'm David Brown. Thanks for listening.